Today we will be reading from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Oh, thank you, Debbie. And good morning. It is great to be with you once again as we come to God's Word in the final part of Philippians. The Titanic is undoubtedly the most famous shipwreck in history. The massive liner built in the early 1900s was the largest and most luxurious ship ever assembled at that point. Not only was it impressive in size, it was remarkably sturdy. Uh, it was built with double-bottomed hull divided into 16 watertight compartments, uh, four of which could actually be flooded and the ship wouldn't even sink. Because of this and other innovative safety features, this ship was considered to be unsinkable. In the movie, uh, the designer of the ship remarks, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. In 1912, during its voyage from Southampton to New York City, uh, shortly before midnight on April 14, the Titanic collided with an iceberg. Five compartments uh, ruptured immediately, and to everyone's horror, the ship started to sink. 
Eventually, the whole ship went down into the ocean, and many lost their lives. In the end, what many thought stood as perhaps the most dependable vessel in the world couldn't stay afloat. I wonder what you consider to be dependable. What are you depending on this morning? What are you depending on for your happiness, for your security, for your satisfaction? What is it? Uh, is what you're depending on truly reliable? As with the Titanic, this question is an important one, for what we depend upon will either hold us up when the storms of life come, or they will sink us. In our passage today, we'll see that God himself is supremely dependable. He is worthy of trust more than anything in the universe, in every situation, to supply every need through the gospel. And through Jesus, he invites us into a happy, contented trust as we rest in his care. As the book of Philippians draws to a close, uh, in our passage today, Paul concludes by warmly thanking the church for supporting his ministry. Uh, the gift that the Philippians sent through Epaphroditus uh, was the primary reason for letting, uh, writing this letter in the first place. But not only does Paul thank them, uh, he takes this opportunity in the matter of giving and receiving and needs to teach them how and why they can depend on God. He does this uh, first through giving his own example of contentment, and then he commends the, the church for their example of generosity. And then finally, he reminds them of the sturdy promise of God's dependability. And so if you look at your handout, you can see the passage broken down into three sections, really three lessons on contentment uh, from the three characters in this passage. So first, Paul shows us the secret of contentment. Look with me at verse 10 through 13. See up on the screen as well. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. As Paul begins here by addressing again the joy he's experienced from the Philippians' concern for him. But then he says, well, to be clear, I didn't actually need your gift. Actually, if you didn't send me anything, I'd be okay. Why? For I have learned to be content. The word for content here carries this idea of being satisfied or at peace with things the way that they currently are. In our world, uh, people use the word content to mean that, uh, that they're happy with the way things are in their lives. You know, I'm, I'm content in my current job. But this isn't exactly what Paul means here. The secret he's learned is to be content in any and every situation. 
Not just when things go his way, but when things don't go his way. As he says, whether need or plenty, fed or hungry, in plenty or in want. Now, this is a pretty shocking statement from Paul, I think, especially when you consider what kind of suffering he's been through in his life. On his missionary journey, Paul has been lashed, he's been beaten with rods, he's often gone without sleep, often without food. So how is it that he can say this? Uh, What is his secret? Well, he tells us there in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Uh, This statement doesn't mean that he, he thinks God will fulfill whatever desires Come, uh, come from him or come to him. What Paul means here is more like, I can endure all this through him who gives me strength. How does he do this? By depending fully on God who supplies exactly what he needs when he needs it. A Puritan author, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, he defines contentment in this way. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and waits in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Isn't that beautiful? Who among us doesn't crave a kind of resting and quiet spirit? A kind of strength that stands firm when all kinds of suffering and pain and unmet desires come our way. But while we desire this, I think in reality most of us read a definition like this and think, man, if that is contentment, that is not me. I don't have that. I'm miles and miles away from that kind of dependence on God. And that can be a discouraging thought. Well, we need to notice that Paul says contentment is something that needs to be learned. He's learned the secret. Contentment is uh, not like a medicine that you take that cures you instantly. It's more like a healthy diet. Something that happens over the course of months and years, not hours and days. So take heart. Uh, With God's help, there was plenty of time for Paul to learn contentment, and there's plenty of time for us as well. So then, how do we learn? Well, I think there's a lot of ways we could look at. Today, I want to suggest three, three ways we can learn to grow in contentment. First... Uh, is to grip the two truths of God's providence and God's goodness. His providence and his goodness. Uh, Contentment hinges on our belief in God's wise hand in all of our circumstances. That's his providence. And his desire to work things together for our good. His goodness. If one or both of these things are removed, well, we'll be discontent. For example, if, if you are unhappy with your physical appearance, well, then a firm grasp of God's providence will remind you, well, God made me this way in his wisdom. Every little piece of my appearance is in his control and is actually purposeful. 
And then a firm grasp of God's goodness will cause you to say, well, since God is good, I know that him making me this way is actually for my benefit. Perhaps it's, a, it's not a scheme to make me unhappy or unsatisfied, but maybe it's causing me to draw more deeply into resting in him instead of my appearance. Friends, God is always wise and good to his children, and he's not about to stop being those things to you. Charles Spurgeon puts it beautifully like this. Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. On number two, the second thing we can grow in is to flee from the allure of worldly things. I think one of the lies the world feeds us is that we can be content if only we have a little more. If only we have this or that. If only I can secure this job. If only I can get into this school. If only my kids can get into this school. If only I can find a spouse. If only I can have children. If only COVID restrictions were finally gone. If only I lived somewhere else. Now, many of these things are good desires that God can, can give us in, out of his goodness. Uh, but what if being satisfied isn't about having all your circumstances arranged in the way you want, but about trusting God, the one who arranges your circumstances for your good? What if God's ultimate aim is not to make you happy by granting you all your desires, but to make you holy by using good and bad circumstances to change you. And then a third way, a bit more practically, is to take spiritual disciplines seriously. If you wake up one morning or as you're going to bed and you notice something is out of uh, order in your heart, maybe something you're unsatisfied in, an unmet desire, then pray. Pray that God would reorder your heart on him. Carve out deliberate time in his word so that his promises in Christ become more true and more satisfying than any good we could desire. And then finally participate in the grace of fellowship, encouraging one another into God's strength rather than our own. Uh, what if you became a student in Christ's school of contentment this year? What if by next year, with the Spirit's help, leaning on the Lord's strength, you could say, praise God, I'm more content this year than I was the last. Well, that would be something to rejoice in. Well, point two, we also see the Philippians, an example of contentment. In verse 14 to 18. So in this next section, Paul recounts uh, some of the church's history with him as partners in the gospel. And what Paul commends the church for, uh, the example that they leave us, is one of generous giving in support of the gospel. 
Uh, Verse 14 to 16 tells us that after Paul planted this church there in Philippi, he went on to Thessalonica and other parts of Macedonia. Uh, And we read that the Philippians were actually the only church who supported him financially on an ongoing basis. Their support for him wasn't just kind of a one-time deal, send him off on his way and then forget. No, he says, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. This is what true partnership looks like, a, a deep concern and an ongoing commitment and specifically here through financial support. And then in verse 17 and 18, Paul gives the Philippians kind of two reasons why their financial support is so commendable and why we then should follow their example. So first we see in verse 17 that giving is one way to store up treasure in heaven. I think that's Paul's point there in verse 17, you'll see on the screen. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. What is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that, you know, it's great that you helped me when I was in need. But actually, I'm more concerned about what giving means for you. He uses kind of a business metaphor that more be credited to their accounts. By giving to Paul, the Philippians are investing in their own eternal account with God. This doesn't mean kind of believers are to give in order to get, but just that God is pleased when his people give towards his work. I wonder what you are doing in your own accounts to store up treasure in heaven. A few years ago, the government of India declared all 500 and 1,000 rupee banknotes to be null and void, effective four hours from the announcement. That would like being, that's like being uh, told that all 100 Hong Kong dollar banknotes in your wallet right now would be void this afternoon. Uh, What would you do with the soon-to-be-worthless bills? Well, likely you'd turn them in for a currency that will last, wouldn't you? Friends, this is one of our primary motives to give. We've been given the ability to exchange worldly wealth for treasure that will last by giving it to fuel the gospel and the mission of the church. Well, the second reason we give is because giving is an act of worship that pleases God. That's Paul's idea there in verse 18. So he says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. This kind of ceremonial language is found throughout the Old Testament and describes kind of uh, their worship of God for the Israelites, giving offerings to God. And so Paul's saying this, this gift was kind of sent to Paul in one way, but in a very real sense, it was also to God. It was pleasing to God. It, it smelled good to him is kind of the meaning there. 
He's not saying that giving can somehow make us right with God, but that giving is one way we worship him and sacrificing some of what's been given to us so that he can use it for him and his kingdom. It's a way to show our contentment in him. So as we give generously as a church to support God's work, God uses it, uh, uh, God sees it ultimately as giving to him, as worship to him. And with that, he is delighted. So if this is God's design for his church, how can we at Ambassador get in on this? How can you as a church member participate today in this kind of giving that lasts for eternity? Well, one way is just to get to know the missionaries and the missions work that we are committed to here. We have a brochure on the welcome table in the back that you're more than welcome to take. It has a list of them so you can be aware of where your giving is going to, what kind of work our missionaries are involved in, and how you can be praying for them. If, you, if you'd like, you can also receive prayer letters directly from them as they give updates. Just let us know that you're interested. We can get you on that list. And then once you know them, you can support them by giving to the local church. At Ambassador, 10% of our overall budget goes to directly to our partners. You can also give uh, to a missions partner directly uh, through directed giving. I think one benefit of giving through the local church rather than maybe somewhere else is that rather than trying to figure out what missionaries you can support on your own or which ones are reliable or what work they're doing, well, the local church has already has wise leaders who have built relationships with and strategies for how to use the money effectively for gospel impact. Another way you can get in on this, you can go. We'd love to be growing the amount of gospel workers that Ambassador supports. Uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful if some from our church entered into this kind of Paul-Philippians partnership that we see here. May God raise up more of us to go and more of us to support those who do for his glory. If you have more questions about how can I support international missions, well, we have a little book for free on the back table. It's this one, and it's that exact title, How Can I Support International Missions? So if you're interested in learning more, have questions, do uh, feel free to pick up one of those on your way out. And then point three, we see God shows us the source of contentment. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What an astounding promise this is. This promise is what fuels the incredible contentment that we saw in Paul. And it's what fuels the Philippians' example of generous giving. Knowing that we will be supplied, we're freed to give and sacrifice what we do have. But how can we be sure of this promise? What about those of us who feel at the moment that our needs are not being met? 
What about Paul? Wasn't Paul in great need? Oh, Abigail Dobbs is a writer for the Desiring God website, and she helps us with this question. You can see her quote up here. She says, God's ideas about our flourishing are different than ours. We think flourishing means a good job, being given the opportunity to succeed at something, good medical care. Those are good things, but they are not the things God is most concerned about supplying us in this life for our flourishing. There is nothing we truly need that is not found in Christ. How do we know this? Where can we look? Friends, we need look no further than the gospel. We can be sure of this promise because in the gospel, our greatest need has already been met. The truth is, we were, all of us, born into discontentment with our creator, God. It's a feature of our broken hearts as a result of the fall. We, we just don't naturally trust him with our circumstances. We don't naturally trust what he says in his word. And since God is holy and just, he can't just pretend that we haven't rebelled against him. And so our, our all-consuming need is to remove the stain that sin has brought, to somehow escape the guilty sentence that we rightly deserve from God. But God did the unimaginable. In our need, he provided the only thing that could possibly save us, his own son. He gave his son out of love for us. Jesus was sent to the cross to die in our place, taking all of our sin on himself. And then rising from the dead, he defeated death and sin forever, so that now all who come to him in faith will find our need fully and finally met. What does having our greatest need met in Christ mean for us now, today? If you are a Christian this morning, it means that we have grounds to trust him fully. God is loving and a gracious father. He was willing to give up his own son to save us. Romans 8:32 says, How can then we not trust him to give us everything else we need? His riches are inexhaustible. For a Christian, this promise means that day by day, God will give us uh, the grace and the strength to meet every new circumstance. As we read in 2 Corinthians 9, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What does this promise mean for us? This promise means we can experience incredible comfort and stability on a daily basis. So we can even say with King David, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. And then if you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad you're here. You're always welcome. We want you to know that Jesus uh, invites you this morning to come to him and find all your needs met. 
by turning from sin and trusting him, not only can you find contentment and strength to help you endure every circumstance that you face, but you'll find your greatest need met, peace with God himself. And a promise you can depend on for everything, that God will supply all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. So then, we've seen the secret of a content heart. We've seen a great example of a heart set on the Lord through generous giving. And we've seen God's promise to all those in Christ to supply our every need in him. In the concluding verses of the letter, verse 21 to 23, Paul sends his greetings and those he's with. He even mentioned those in Caesar's household. Evidently, they came to Christ as a result of Paul's being in prison there. And then he finishes the letter the same way he started, book-ended by grace. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So Paul starts the letter reminding them that they are partakers of grace, that God accepts them freely and joyfully through Jesus. And then he ends with grace. He says, friends, as you heed my words and instruction, as you reflect on all you've learned and heard from me, and now will go do for the Lord, remember this. Remember the grace you've received that's been given freely without earning it, without deserving it. And now go and do all you need for Christ with that freedom of grace. So, Ambassador Church, as our time in Philippians comes to an end, we can rejoice knowing that the grace of Jesus comes with us. For however many times we continue to fail to live for him, continue to fail to look like him, Jesus will remain with us. His grace will be sufficient for all we need. So, dear friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come before you thankful. We thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and your goodness in dealing with us. And we pray that you'd help us learn more and more to depend on you uh, in everything we face. We thank you for the promise to supply all our needs. And we praise you that you've proven that in the gospel. We pray that you'd help us trust in that promise now and into the future as we go. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.